You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Richardson, 
who designed almost all of the Massachusetts libraries. <laughs> Not really sure why Massachusetts had all the public libraries, but Richardson designed almost all of them. So we're going to take a quick diversion to discuss library architecture before Carnegie. Um, as I said, the architect Henry Hobson Richardson, H.H. H. Richardson, built early public library buildings during the late 19th century. Um, other architects at the time copied his overall plans, one of the reasons being he died very young, but um, he was influential. So these libraries were heavily influenced by uh, monastery libraries in the Middle Ages. So think back to those days. Um, books were valuable because they were entirely produced by hand. In fact, some libraries would chain them up to the shelves and to the counters. The library of the 19th century was a little better, but the public could still not really go to the shelf directly to look at books. Um, they were conceived as treasure houses, and sometimes they also had art galleries and uh, museum, museums in addition to books. So um, the <coughs> late 19th century was a very interesting time in both the history of libraries and the history of architecture. Um, by the way, the people on the screen here, the guy on the left is William Frederick Poole, and the fellow on the right is A.J.H. Richardson, just to be clear about that. Um, the American Institute of Architects was founded in 1857, and as I've said, the American Library Association was founded in 1876. Um, prominent librarians did not approve of Richardson's approach to library design. William Frederick Poole was a founding member of ALA and a president of the American Library Association from 1885 to 87, and he was Richardson's worst critic. <laughs> uh, Richardson's designs evoked the ecclesiastical. These are buildings to inspire religious awe. They're like temples to learning. But Poole pointed out that libraries are secular institutions, and they needed to be functional first. In a critique of one of Richardson's designs, Poole said, he appears to have been satisfied if he drew a beautiful design and to, left it, and to have left it to some draftsman to fit in the books in the service. When will we find an artist who will plan for use first and beauty next? Who will see where his bookshelves and his reading halls and his workrooms ought to go for the highest efficiency? He had concluded this attack by quoting yet another librarian you've probably heard of, Melville Dewey, the architect is the natural enemy of the librarian. <laughs> so, does anyone know what this building is? I imagine it is. This is a George Peabody Library. Um, the, the Peabody Library is a library typical of the library architecture of this period. So, um, in the view of Poole, what was wrong with the setup of these buildings? I mean, there are brand buildings to be sure. I mean, nowadays you see these online, people call them cathedrals of books. Uh, they had great halls with alcoves, uh, with books located in balconies. In buildings like this, a librarian would have to climb many stairs to reach materials and bring them back down. Uh, books in the highest shelves would become damaged from the rising heat, definitely in the highest balconies. Um, it was also undesirable to allow patrons access to the books in the ground level alcoves because the library could not possibly supervise their activity. So the Peabody Library wasn't a building designed by Richardson, but again, it was definitely influenced by him. And Poole had the same criticism of this building. In an ALA meeting, he lambasted the vacuity of the design and called it an expensive luxury. Um, Poole's ideas of library design mostly applied to larger library buildings, not to branch libraries. He wanted centralized book stacks. 
He wanted freestanding shelving with shelves only a little higher than the average person, so that way you wouldn't have to climb on ladders or climb stairs to get those books. He also wanted the building to be well lit, whether by natural light or other means. And if the building was a large library, a best practice would be to divide books up into separate rooms by subject. Um, oh yeah, this next shot kind of gives you a better idea of what the books are like in these balconies. I mean, I'm sure you maybe you've gone to the Peabody, maybe you've actually taken a tour. So this is a 19th century flame war, so it was mostly waged on paper. On the librarian side, this was mostly in the form of articles and various periodicals that librarians, you know, wrote in, and in ALA meetings. And on the architect side, the bubbles mostly appeared in the American Architect and Building News. Um, the architects made the point that librarians did not always agree where best to place book stacks, reading halls, and workrooms, so how could they effectively design for that? <laughs> Late in his career, Richardson tried to work with Poole on a library building in Michigan. Richardson tried to incorporate Poole's design suggestions, only to have Poole reject them anyway. <laughs> but by the 1890, um, 1890s, rather, the alcove and hall library had disappeared, and books were placed in freestanding shelving or metal stacks. I mean, of course, these libraries were still there, but no one was designed this way anymore. So um, during the early part of the, early, of the 20th century, librarians were also transforming their approach to service. And this also had an impact on library design. Arthur Groswick promoted the modern library idea which proposed that libraries be an active rather than a passive force in serving the public and to, this is his famous quote, bring book and reader together. This new idea emphasized service to children and the establishment of branch libraries. Um, books were loaded on horse-drawn wagons and brought directly to the people, sort of like the precursor of what we call the bookmobile. Um, this book even discussed how best to serve African Americans and also new Americans, those are the immigrants. So we'll see how this approach to service was expressed in the Carnegie program of library building. So Bostwick also had some suggestions about the layout of a public library. In the 19th century, um, and I hope this, oh, this came out pretty good, um, patrons would go to a central delivery desk to request books from the librarian. A patron, again, would never be able to go to the shelves themselves to browse for books. Um, Boswick definitely did not like this idea of closed shelves and a delivered desk. Um, this is a photo from his book. Um, maybe you can see there's a chain link fence between the librarians and the patrons. Oh my gosh. I'm not sure what, what does that really mean? Who's afraid of whom? I think nowadays you might even call that hostile architecture. <laughs> that's the new term for this stuff. So, and, and notice that's also the New York Public Library. That really kind of, you know, they think of themselves as progressive. So now we're gonna move on to talking about Andrew Carnegie. So um, who was he? Everyone knows a little something. Um, he was born in 1835 in Scotland. He was not born to a wealthy family. His father worked as a weaver. Uh, the family emigrated to Allegheny, Pennsylvania in 1848. Um, he started work as a bottom boy for dollar 20 a week and they got a job as a telegraph operator. This allowed him to become acquainted with some important people, one of whom got him a job organizing military telegraphy during the Civil War. He invested in railroads and then started a steel company. Um, of course, it was called Carnegie Steel. 
Um, he retired in 1901, and he sold his company to J.P. Morgan for over $480 million. I can't begin to imagine how much money that would be now. Um, he died in 1919. Um, he donated 90% of his money to philanthropic causes. That's an unimaginable amount of money. So why did he choose to give money to libraries? Well, it turns out he had a personal connection to libraries. It was his own way of improving himself. As a boy in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, he borrowed books from a library established by Colonel Anderson. And this is the library established for mechanics and working men in the trades. I did a little extra research about this. And it turns out that for most people, that library was a subscription library. But he opened it every weekend to boys who had no money, to poor children, mostly boys. So, um, and this was, you know, he was very grateful to that. I never forgot about that. This is a picture of Colonel Anderson. It's actually in the Allegheny Library in Pennsylvania. So, um, however, the time of Carnegie from the 1870s to the early 20th century was called the Gilded Age. Um, America was becoming increasingly industrialized. Masses of immigrants were working in factories, so the gap between rich and poor was very great. And it goes without saying, Carnegie was what we would call today a member of the 1%. Um, the rich had their critics even back then. Carnegie, however, did not consider wealth to be a bad thing. He wrote two essays, The Gospel of Wealth in 1889 and The Best Fields for Philanthropy the same year. Carnegie believed that the differences between the rich and the poor reflected the survival of the fittest and reflected the progress of society. However, a wealthy person should not use their, should use their excess wealth to benefit others. He did not believe in indiscriminate giving to the poor, rather in giving to those who use the charity to improve themselves. So these are the fields that Carnegie considered to be best uses for philanthropy. Um, the second on this list is a free public library. So um, Carnegie first gave money to libraries, poor libraries to cities with which he had a personal connection. Uh, most people in the United States probably don't know that Carnegie's first library was built in his hometown of Dunfermline, Scotland in 1881. There are a few Carnegie libraries, by the way, in the United Kingdom, not just this one. In the United States, he also gave money to towns with which he had a personal or professional connection. Um, these tended to be towns where he had steel factories. Um, the first two Carnegie libraries in the United States were built in Braddock and Allegheny, Pennsylvania in 1889 and 1890. Um, these buildings were atypical. Um, they cost $357,000 and $481,000 respectively, and they included extravagant um, amenities. Uh, the one in Allegheny included a music hall with 1,200 seats and a $20,000 organ. Um, the one in Braddock had a swimming pool, public baths, bowling alleys, art gallery, gymnasium, and billiard hall. It's like a whole community center. So he referred to his first period of library philanthropy as his retail period. He gave $1.8 million for 14 buildings. The second period he called his wholesale period. He gave $39,172,000 to 1,406 communities. Most of these were small towns, but some large cities, um, um, some large cities also received money, mostly for branches, sometimes for a central library building. Um, for example, he gave New York City money to build 72 branch libraries. 
Once word got out that Carnegie was giving money to Bill Marcus, people from all over the United States wrote him asking for money. In many cases, these people would be women's clubs and literary clubs, especially in small towns. There were a lot of small towns that this was actually the first library that they ever went on. Um, he attached conditions to his gifts of money. The town had to provide a site for the building. They would also have to guarantee, through the levy of tax dollars, the maintenance of the library building in an amount of at least 10% of Carnegie's gift. Um, again, these requirements reflected his belief that a library was an institution which would encourage people to better themselves, and he wanted to see cities and towns showing the same kind of initiative. All that Carnegie would provide was the building. This is a real departure from the way many early public libraries were funded. In Carnegie's thinking, libraries would be sustained through public money and they would be regarded as public institutions. So some towns were happy to accept these conditions. I love these cartoons, they're great. But some cities did not necessarily want the responsibility of the gift money. Detroit and Pittsburgh were cities that initially did not want to accept the gift, but eventually enabling legislation was passed so maintenance of these library buildings could be provided for. So we're gonna talk for a minute about the process for applying for a Carnegie library. So if a city wanted money for a library, they had to apply for it through Carnegie's secretary, James Bertram. Uh, by the way, the guy on the left standing, that's Bertram. Um, and the fellow sitting down, that's Andrew Carnegie. Bertram was also from Scotland. I'm not sure what their connection was originally. Um, so a city would have to answer questions about the population of the city, questions about its existing library, if it had one, um, questions about the potential tax revenue that could be raised from maintenance of the library once it was built. Only rarely did Carnegie himself respond to these requests. Almost all went through Bertram. Um, Bertram would refuse requests for money if it was clear that the building would be put to uses other than that as a library. Um, remember, the money was given only for the construction of the library building, so the city would have to provide the land for the building, the books, the furniture, and provisions for the staffing. So, um, I don't know how well you can see this. If you can't see it very well, we had a table over here with a lot of things that are related to this program. Um, this is an important document in library planning. Um, this is a pamphlet called Notes on the Erection of Library Buildings and it was sent by Bertrand in response to applications after 1911. So he resisted anything that might possibly be what he considered to be architectural excess. So if there were domes, columns, rich furnishings, if there were requests for any of that stuff, he did not like that. He considered all that to be a waste of space and money. The building needed to function well as a library. Um, so this pamphlet included sample floor plans for library buildings. Here's an example of that. Um, again, this is from the notes on the erection of library buildings, um, also known as effective library accommodation. Um, Carnegie's program of library building really revolutionized how public libraries functioned as buildings and in their uh, philosophy of service to the public. These buildings were supposed to, again, reflect the modern library idea. Um, and again, that was to bring patrons and books together. Many, though not all, of the Carnegie libraries allow the public to have direct access to the book collection rather than a delivery desk and stack area accessible only to the librarian. Um, so patrons would be able to come to the library and find books for themselves. 
A Carnegie Library building um, would have books in a reading room on the first floor and a lecture hall in the basement. Uh, almost all of these um, floor plan setups are set up that way. Um, Carnegie also made the condition that none of the libraries he funded would bear his name. Um, so I don't know how well you can see. You see the, uh, the word buildings, you see how that is spelled. <laughs> So that's not a spelling mistake. Um, he was actually using a, a method of simplified spelling invented by Melville Dewey. Mm. I assume everybody here is heard of Melville Dewey. The entire document has this interesting spelling. It's, so if you have a chance to take a look at it, I have that over there. So um, this is yet another rendering of the typical Carnegie Library plan as it appeared in the last printing of Bertram's pamphlet, which was issued in 1918. By the way, Bertram was not an architect himself. This particular image is from a source that outed the architect responsible for these drawings. And there's an interesting story about that person. And we're going to talk about that later in the program. We'll have to wait to hear who that was. Um, by the way, no recommendations were given as to the exterior of the building. That would be entirely up to the architect and his client. This is the mystery image. Um, this is sort of a another person's rendering of what the floor plans look like um, as they appeared in Bertram's pamphlet in 1918. That's the last year that he, that he, um, that he issued that pamphlet. Um, so, let's see here. Let's see, now we need to move on to the next slide. So okay. how long, okay, wait a minute, re, re, how long was Carnegie's wholesale period? The wholesale period went from, if you want to go back a couple slides. Sorry, I just, it's on there. Let's see. On here or go back? Can you go back and, yeah. The wholesale period goes back quite a bit. Yes. 1920 was dominated by design based on classical Roman and Greek architecture. Some of you probably already know what this is. Um, the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago set the tone for classicism as a cutting edge style. I mean, before that, I, I would say medieval architecture was probably more influential. Um, and then the next slide is uh, another view of the Columbian Exposition. Um, and then I have another slide. I move next. Um, it's interesting to know that the American Library Association was there too, and undoubtedly they also saw this brand new classical architecture. Um, many architects at the time were trained in Paris at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, and I'm going to say this very badly, I don't speak French, so forgive me. And they also taught classical design during that period. Um, and we're going to see a variety of Carnegie libraries when we see the Pratt Carnegie's. So now we have a lot of background about Andrew Carnegie and his public library program, so we're going to move on to Enoch Pratt. So we're going to go over to Chicago. Okay, Enoch Pratt lived from 1808 to 1896, and like Carnegie, he did not grow up wealthy. Um, he was the son of a Massachusetts farmer. 
He arrived in Baltimore when he was only 23 with only $150 in his pocket. And his first business was an iron dealer in mule shoes and nails. So, next slide. Um, so, okay. Not long after the Civil War, he was a pretty successful businessman. So here he is listed in the city directory for 1873. Um, he was president at that time of the National Farmers and Planters Bank, vice president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad. He also became a principal in the Susquehanna Canal Company and the Maryland Steamboat Company. I don't even know if I'm giving a complete list of all the businesses he was involved with. Uh, but by the time he established the Pratt Library, he was a wealthy man. That's my point. So we can move on to the next slide. In 1886, Enoch Pratt opened the central branch of the Enoch Pratt Free Library on Cathedral Street between Mulberry and Franklin Streets. Within two years, he had opened five neighborhood branches. Um, he believed greatly in the concept of a free library open to all. My library, you all probably know this quote, shall be for all, rich and poor, without distinction of race or color, who, when properly accredited, can take out the books if they will handle them carefully and return them. We still hope you return the books. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, next slide. It's going to be kind of hard to see, but believe me, these next two slides are kind of the primary evidence of what I'm about to read to you. There are some really interesting connections between Enoch Pratt and Andrew Carnegie. In 1890, Andrew Carnegie came to visit Enoch Pratt to see Pratt's library and its branches. Pratt's philanthropy deeply impressed Carnegie. Enoch Pratt is mentioned in his essays, The Gospel of Wealth and the Best Fields for Philanthropy. Carnegie once said, Pratt was my guide and inspiration and his decision to make libraries his chief form of giving. Okay, next slide. Um, this is actually a quote from uh, The Gospel of Wealth, and it's about Pratt. By placing books within the reach of 37,000 aspiring people, which they were anxious to attain, Mr. Pratt has done more for the genuine progress of the people than has been done by all the contributions of all the millionaires and rich people to help those who cannot or will not help themselves. So we're going to move on to the next slide. Oh, good. I'm so happy this is visible. This is the slide that disappears sometimes. Um, years later, the Pratt Library looked to expand its system of branches. This was because the city was growing, and it was adding land through a series of annexations. The last annexation of the city of Baltimore happened in 1918. Probably a lot of you know that. But there were other annexations, too. Um, the Adam Land incorporated many early suburban communities along transit lines. These were known as streetcar suburbs. Um, and we have another slide. This is sort of a fun slide. Um, even before there were streetcars, there were horse cars. They ran on tracks like railroads. Um, horse cars became electrified Baltimore in 1890. But I mean, the growth of these suburban communities was already well underway. Uh, and we have another slide. By the early 20th century, the Enoch Pratt Library had the third highest circulation in the country after Boston and Chicago. Um, the book collection had grown so large that the Central Library could barely accommodate them all. The system had seven branches and five stations. So stations were one-room branches. They were located in buildings being used for other purposes. The growth of the library system put a strain on Enoch Pratt's original endowment. That's how they were getting by. They were living off the endowment. Uh, this is a list of the branches and stations from 1906. This is from the uh, 1907 annual report. So, next slide. So, um, on July 16, 1906, James A. Gary, president of the library's board of trustees, wrote Andrew Carnegie, and I quote, 
calling his attention to our library and his needs, and expressing the hope that he would feel disposed in the present situation to render us aid in the much needed extension of our work. Carnegie wrote back on November 10, 1906, offering $500,000 for 20 branch libraries. So let me repeat this. Carnegie wrote back, not wrote from. That's a big deal. It speaks to the relationship Carnegie had with Enoch Pratt. Actually, I have a copy of the annual report with that page marked if you want to read the entire letter. And he refers to Pratt as his dear friend. The branch libraries would not bear Carnegie's name, but would be called the Enoch Pratt Branch Libraries. Um, and the next slide here is. Excuse me, what was the date of that letter? Oh, I'm sorry. It is uh, July 16, 1906 is when Gary wrote, and then um, November 10, 1906 is when Carnegie wrote back. Okay, so Enoch Pratt had already passed away by this time. Yes. Yeah, but Gary, actually Gary, I think, was um, president of the board for quite a long time. I think all the way up to the face. I really don't, yeah, I, seriously, I, I'm pretty surprised. So um, the next slide here. Oops. Yeah, that's just a, that's an article explaining the city accepted the gift. Um, this is something you probably won't be able to see very well from your seats. But it was a pretty exciting find to me. This is Carnegie's gift of Baltimore. I'm ledgers of the Carnegie Corporation of New York City. Yeah. And you can see how much money was given on what date and the total, $500,000. So um, the city council officially accepted the gift by ordinance on April 8, 1907. I guess we can move on to the next slide. Yes. So um, as you can see from this range of years, 1909 to 1924, um, the funds for building these libraries lasted a long time. Each branch cost around $25,000 for a total of 15 branches. In fact, the money ran out with the last branch constructed, and the city had to get funds to complete that building. Um, as we've already seen, Carnegie required that the land had to be provided for the building. In most cases, the land was donated. Um, then a builder and architect were selected. These had to be approved by the City of Baltimore and the Board of Trustees. We'll get to a discussion of the architects later in the program, and I'm going to show you some images of the branches. All these original images are in our special collections department, but also you can find them on digital now. They've been digitized. So we'll go on to the first one, trying to be kind of quicker. This is Branch 9, Locust Point Branch, uh, on Beeson and Towson Street, built in 1910. It was used as a library branch until 1928. I think it's still standing still there. It's a business. Yeah. Someone knows that? It's a warehouse. Yeah, okay. Um, the next one is Branch 11. Oh, okay, we got it. Okay, Branch 11 is the South Central Branch, built in 1921, um, at 4 South Central Avenue. Um, no longer a library. I think it's a private home. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh That'd be a pretty cool house. It's got that really um, cool The next one is Branch 12, um, Mount Clare Branch at Fallout Carroll Streets. This was the first branch built with Carnegie's money in 1909. This is now a church. Um, and the next photo here is a, this is a group of kids using the library in the 1940s. Don't know if you can see that well, but they're both black and white kids together. And some of them are really little. <laughs> Um, the next one is Branch 13. That's the Patterson Park Library at Linwood and East Fayette, built in 1910, and it's still, still in use. This is a library branch. Amazing. And um, this next photograph is some um, people using the young adult area of the library in the 70s. Okay, and the next slide. 
Okay, Branch 14 at Garrison and Calloway Avenue, the Forest Park Branch, built in 1909. And this is still a library. I'm kind of hoping somebody's going to nod. And it's about to undergo renovation. Yay. Probably really needs it. Well, she's there. Um, the next one is Branch 15, 1443 Gorsuch Avenue. And that's uh, the old Waverly Branch, built in 1911. Um, sometimes called the Homestead Branch. The branch is still standing and it's being used as a church. Of course, we have a Waverly Branch, it's just not there. It's on 33rd. Um, and that's okay, good, she's moving on. That's an undated uh, photo of the interior. Um, it's pretty cool that I found some interior pictures. How about really the BLP? That. Wasn't it when the original was like Hobbit Houses? Which the one? Branches? There's like four of them. Uh, like, there's one down in Wright Street and one down on 24th and St. Paul. Those are, some of, uh, those are some of Pratt's original branches. Those are not yeah, Carnegie's. No. Uh, yeah, no. yeah, remember there were some branches of Pratt himself built, so that with Pratt's money. Okay, so, um, all right, let's see, move on to the next one. Uh, branch 16, this is a Keyworth and Park Heights Avenue, known as the Keyworth Branch. Um, it was built in 1912. It's no longer being used as a library branch. This is what I haven't been able to figure out if it's still standing or in use. Does anyone know? I feel like I'm going to have to actually go there to find out. Google, what street? Google Street, street View is not helping me. Righteous Town or what? It's Keyworth and Park Heights Avenue. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, so, and the next branch. Um, this is Branch 17, the old Easterwood branch. Um, this is located at 2217 West North Avenue, built in 1914. Um, I like this branch the best. Look at that. It's very fancy. I love the brickwork and the tile roof. I always thought that was a very exotic. Um, yeah, I really love this one. I'm not really sure what architectural style this is. It's it's now a church and it's actually in pretty good condition. Amazing. So I don't know. Churches took Yeah. So okay. And then the next slide is the interior of the branch. It looks like a fireplace in the back of the room. I mean, actually, the library is central. Pratt Central has a fireplace too. If you haven't seen it, it's down the children's department. It looks like it may be used as a bookcase there. Um, this is Branch 18 at 2001 North Wolf Street, and that's the Clifton Branch, built in 1916. That one's still being used as a library, so several several of them are. Um, the next one is Branch 19. It's in Fells Point. And that's in Fells Point, 606 South Ann Street. Um, I don't know exactly when it closed. I'm pretty sure that may have been a library all the way up to maybe the 80s or the 90s. It's, it's not open now? Not now. It's all no. going to do with it. It's no longer being used. It's a library. It's still 1922. So the next branch coming up. Okay, that's Branch 20. Um, the Hamilton Branch Library at Hamilton Avenue and Hartford Road. Um, and this is built in 1920. Um, this is a branch that's in my neighborhood. This is sort of my own Carnegie Library story. Um, it was nearly demolished for parking lot. Um, and I got involved in the fight to save this branch, um, along with Baltimore Heritage and the Hamilton Marvel Main Street. I mean, I, it was the most pleasant chap hearing I've ever been to. If you've ever been to the city's historical architectural preservation hearings, I went and testified. Um, I could tell they really were not going to tear this building down. They had a soft spot in their heart for this building, as did I. And we succeeded in saving this building. It was listed in the National Register of Historic Places in 2012. Good. Yeah. Still now? Still a library? Um, no, it's not still a library. For a long time, it was a union hall. Um, so let's go on to the next slide. 
Um, this is what it looks like now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Not as nice, but I mean, recently it really ran into ruin for a long time. Um, so it does look a lot better. It's now a mental health center. It just opened in 2019. So I'm just happy to see the building actually become oh, used. Yeah. Um, and the next branch is branch number 21, the Mount Washington branch at the corner of Smith Avenue and Greeley Road. This is built in 1921. And the building is now being used as Baltimore Clay Works. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Works. Yeah. yeah. And it looks pretty nice. I mean, it looks like they really, nice. really kept it up very well. Yeah. Uh, the next branch is 22. And this is the Gobins Branch Library at Bologna Avenue. That's still being used as a library. Uh, we have a few more left. Uh, branch 23. Um, this is the Brooklyn Branch Library at Patapsco Street and 3rd Avenue. Uh, built in 1921. This branch closed in 1965, and as far as I know, it's the only Carnegie branch to have been demolished. Um, and this is the last one to be, able to be built entirely with Carnegie funds. Um, and then the last branch here, 24, is the Irvington branch. So this is partially constructed with funds from Carnegie's gift, and the city gave money so the building could be completed. So that makes that the first Pratt branch to be built with city funds. Remember, the first libraries that were built were built with Pratt's money. Mm. Then it was Carnegie's money, then it was city money. And that's pretty much still the case. It's the city's money that's, that's building and repairing the branches. So this is at South Lawn Avenue near Frederick Grove. Um, this building is greatly altered, but it's being used as a church. So, um, a lot of them are churches. churches. Yes, you wouldn't believe. So we'll move on to the next. So we'll talk about a few of the architects. Um, who were they? What I found interesting was is that some of them studied at the famous school in Paris, the Ecole des Beaux Arts, um, and also the architecture community in Baltimore was a small, closely knit group. Maybe not a surprise to people. Um, undoubtedly, they knew each other, and in some cases, they actually worked with each other. Um, so this first person here is Theodore Wells Peach. He was the architect for the Hamilton Library. He did study in Paris, and his most famous building is the Eastern High School. So we move on. Oh, when Hopkins took over. Um, yes, they did. You're right. Yeah, that's right. Um, this next fellow is Otto G. Simonson. He was an architect for the um, Clifton Library. Um, he studied um, also, well, no, I'm sorry. He studied architecture in Germany. He emigrated to the United States as a young person. Um, and for a time, he was a partner with Theodore Wells Peach. Um, the next fellow is Edward H. Glidden. Okay, I see she moved on. I have a reflection. Um, and he designed the Mount Washington Brooklyn branches. Um, he had a brief partnership with Clyde Nelson Fitz, <coughs> who was one of the architects who designed the new Central Library building. Um, like Peach, he studied architecture in Paris at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. Another architect, Thomas G. Machen, also studied at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. Machen designed the Irvington branch. I do not have a picture of him, by the way. I never did find a photograph of him. Um, the next image is not a person. Maybe you figured that out. Um, this is John Appleton Wilson. He was the architect of Easterwood and Keyworth branches. He was the secretary for the Maryland Historical Society and also a photographer, so I substituted a photograph that he took. This is on Cathedral Street. Um, the next image, this is kind of nifty. Um, this is Joseph Evans Sperry. Um, he was the architect for the Locust Point, Mount Clare, and Patterson Park branches. Um, and this is a drawing of himself holding sketches of his buildings. 
Um, his most famous building that you probably know is the Bromoselser Tower. Oh, yeah. um, and for a time, he worked in association with Charles L. Parson, who was the architect for the first Central Library building. So, um, all right, we can move on. Um, probably can't see the logo, but I'll tell you what it is. Um, there were three firms associated with the Carnegie branches, um, and I can only find information on one of these. It was a firm called Sill, Buckler, and Fenhagen. They designed the Gilgans Library. Um, the interesting thing is, these are the architects who founded the firm now known as Irish St. Gross. Maybe some of you have heard of that firm. Irish St. Gross is a firm that worked on a renovation of the Central Library in the 1980s, the annex in 2003, and the current renovation under, San, uh, under architect Sandra Vici. So this is a firm that has had the Pratt Library as a client for 98 years. Wow. And that's, um, that's from Irish St. Gross's webpage. I don't think that's a picture of um, the original farm, though. I could never find a picture of that, but that's the best I could do. So um, move on. Okay, good. So this is the last part. The branch libraries were not the only contribution Carnegie made to the Pratt Library. Um, the progress Carnegie made in the planning branch libraries was carried over to the planning of large central libraries, and the Carnegie Corporation continued to support libraries even after Carnegie's death in 1919. Um, so you saw all those fabulous branch libraries Baltimore built with Carnegie's money. So we can move on. In the meantime, this is what the Central Library looked like. Business at the Central Library was conducted much as any library in the late 19th century. In the early days of the library, a patron would use a finding aid, which is a book listing all the books owned by the library, and these would change to a counter, kind of like in the medieval library. <laughs> Uh, we actually have a copy of the Finding Aid over here if you want to look at that. It's a thin book. Um, after 1904, a patron would be checking a car catalog. That would be an innovation. And then the patron would fill out a slip for the book and give this to a librarian at the desk who would go to the stacks to find it. Um, a patron was only allowed two asks per day and could only check out one book at a time. So you could only ask for two books a day and you could only take home one of them. And unlike our catalog now, you'll have no idea whether that book is there on the shelf waiting for you. If it's a popular book, you might be coming more than one day. Wow. Um, next slide. Oh, wait a minute. Well, okay, we'll, we'll stay on the slide for a while. So the book collection was growing, and the central library was becoming crowded, and the building was not <coughs> aging well. In 1925, H.L. Mencken said that the central branch was, this is a quote, so infernally hideous that it ought to be pulled down by the common hangar. Nothing more dreadful was built in Baltimore during the awful 80s. He suggested as Victorian Masada be, again quoting, torn off and thrown into the harbor, along with the bones of the architect who designed it. So, oh, go back to the previous slide. So, question, do you recognize this architecture? This is considered to be Richardsonian Romanesque. The arches sort of. So again, this is a, another library that was very influenced by H.H. Richardson. So librarians do not like these libraries. Anyone here is a fan of Richardson probably going home with hurt feelings. So move on. <laughs> Oops. Yes, thank you. So this is the delivery desk in the original Central Library. This is not as bad as the delivery desk with the chain link fence, but it's still not a friendly place. Um, on the left of the counter, that's a glass case, and that's where they kept the new and especially desirable books. And a patron would have to come up to the desk 
and tap on the glass to show the light. So that's one that was in. So yes. So um, the book collection was outgrowing the Central Library building, and books had to be stored in four central buildings. Uh, I'm sorry, four separate buildings near the Central Library building. And here are the buildings. So the first one is 406 Cathedral Street. Then we have 400 Cathedral Street. Next. That's great. Um, and 110 West Mulberry Street. So let's see here. I think we went through four buildings. Yes. Okay. So as a librarian, I'm going to say this. This setup looks like a nightmare. Could you imagine having to retrieve books from basically five separate buildings? I heard that there might have been like some sort of like like bridges that go between them. I don't know. It didn't make sense to me. All of these smaller buildings were raised in 1931 to make way for the new Central Library building, but this library could not happen until we got a librarian with a new vision. So in the early days, we'll talk about our librarians. We had librarians, not directors. Today we call them directors. So this was a librarian with a capital F. Um, the first librarian of the Pratt Library was Louis H. Steiner. He was a friend of the Pratt. Um, he died in 1892. And let's move on. And his son, Bernard C. Steiner, replaced him. Were these all Quakers? Um, I don't know. I don't think they were. I'm not really sure. Um, the Steiners were very scholarly and very 19th century in their approach to running the library. Um, Bernard Steiner was a bit of a micro um, He was the only one that would buy books for the library. He was also the only one to decide to discard books for the library. I guess, does everyone know what that means, discarding a book? Totally. Yeah, okay. Removing a book that's so long and useful. Okay, I was worried people might not have that. Um, he also uh, would not allow women librarians to bot their hair. <laughs> I mean, further all the time, that was a thing. Um, after Bernard Steiner suddenly died in 1925, the Board of Trustees hired Joseph Wheeler. This is, oh, okay, sure he had some up. And he was a professional librarian. He studied um, library science in New York. He got a master's degree there. And he was librarian of the Youngstown, Ohio Public Library when he was hired to run the Pratt. So um, here's a trivia question. Does anyone know another of our directors who also was director in Youngstown, Ohio? Nope. Nobody? Heidi Daniel. Have anyone, has anyone heard of Heidi Daniel? It's our new director. That's where she's from. Believe it or not. Are you with the one that's been 50 years? Yeah, well. <laughs> okay. So we wanted to end this 19th century approach to service in the Central Library. Within a few months of becoming director, he put open shelving in the library and pulled out about 7,000 books from the stacks so the public could browse the shelves on their own. Move on. Um, most of the Pratt Party branches already had open shelves, but at Central Library, this was front page news. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I love this cartoon. So we move on. So Wheeler almost immediately saw the need for his new Central Library building. In May of 1926, he urged replacement of the antiquated building and the purchase of thousands of new books. In May of 1927, voters were asked to approve a $3 million loan for the new building which they did, that's a lot of money back then. So Wheeler's new library would be the embodiment of the modern library idea. Um, I guess we can move on. Okay, so remember Bostwick? He wanted um, the library to be an active rather than a passive force and to bring book and reader together. 
So this meant that libraries would not wait around for readers to voluntarily enter its doors. Um, let's see, but entice people to visit them. The branches serve part of this function by being available to people in their immediate neighborhoods, but central library would need to be attractive and function, functional for everyone in the city. Um, in some ways, the design of central library actually was modeled after retail establishments. I guess we can move on. This is a picture that was taken not long after the building was first built, by the way. Um, librarians wanted to distribute their goods effectively, again, like, like they were retail merchants. Um, we were wanted to build on the site of the old Central Library building. That was actually a question he grappled with. Should I tear down the old building and put it somewhere else? But he decided that because it was not far from the main business center of the city at the time, which is Howard Street, where all the department stores, banks, and theaters were located, that it would still be a good location. So they actually acquired those four buildings um, over time, as I said, and they decided those would go down and also create space for the new building. Um, so we'll go on. So um, we were to hire local architects Clyde and Nelson Frizz to do the design. So these were no longer the days of librarians versus architects. Wheeler and the trustees worked with the architects directly. Um, two other architects, Alfred Gibbons and Edward Tilton, were chosen for their experience in designing libraries, and they acted as consultants to Wheeler and Frizz. Um, the completed Central Library opened on January 3rd, 1933. And um, as you see, this is the original floor plan for the first floor of the Central Library. So, um, I guess we can move on. Okay. This is harder to see, but um, this, this um, picture actually shows um, floor plans for the basement, the second floor, and the third floor. Um, so the design of the Central Library is considered to be the fullest development of the open plan library. The main floor of the building has a large book collection, fully accessible to the public, divided into subject departments. So remember that was actually Poole's idea to divide books by subject into separate rooms. Um, books which were less frequently used would be stored in book stacks below the first floor. Um, we have three floors of books below the ground level of this building here. Do you know that? I don't know, some people don't know. Um, <laughs> Wheeler wanted the main entrance to be accessible at sidewalk level without stairs. And that's a departure also from the way libraries used to look, like large central libraries. They, they would build them the little <coughs> temples of knowledge. Of course, you would have steps going up to the temple, right? But, that, but this is different. Um, exhibit windows on the street level were designed to resemble department store windows, and displays of books would be used to invite the public in. And that was an idea that was developed by librarians. Baltimore's use of these windows was the most extensive use of exhibit windows for any library of that time. The design of Central Library was also influential in library architecture. Oh, let's move on to the next slide. Oh, this is actually a cross-section of the library. And you can see where uh, Central Hall is and the location of the stacks. Um, let's see here. So we'll move on again. Oh, yes. So this is um, a floor plan uh, for Toledo Public Library. Um, the Central Library buildings of Toledo and Rochester also closely followed the floor plan and stack placement of the Central Pratt Library. So it was an influential design. How so much later did, how much later is that design? Toledo was, um, I think Toledo was in 1940. Rochester or Rochester. So it's 40. 
Yeah, and the next slide shows what Toledo looks like on the outside. Wow. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah, so. It's similar. Pretty similar. Not, not exactly alike. You can see they also have like the. the um, Deco. Well, they also have the windows, the display windows. And the stairs. Right. Okay, so we'll move on. So um, Joseph Wheeler and Alfred Gibbons, again, he was one of the consulting architects, wrote this book on the public library building in 1941. Um, this is perhaps the most significant book ever written on the subject. The Carnegie Corporation gave funds to Wheeler and Gibbons for research and production of this book. So again, Carnegie indirectly had a hand in this. Um, and by the way, we, I found out in my research, we only have one copy of this book. It immediately got sent to special collections. The copy on the table is actually my copy, which it's not expensive. It's not very expensive to buy it used. So you're welcome to go take a look at that. Um, also in 1932, you can move on. Um, the Carnegie Corporation donated $8,000 for a window display program, and that was carried over into the design of the new Central Library building. And uh, go ahead. The next slide sort of gives you a flavor of what some of those original designs look like in the windows. And uh, actually, there's a display over here, too, against the wall. I think we had that out for the, uh, the grand reopening. So now, finally, we're going to talk about the most interesting connection between Andrew Carnegie and the Central Library building. Um, OK. Oh, sure, he has the image up. As I said earlier, Carnegie's secretary, James Bertram, was not an architect. He was not solely responsible for the drawings or the concepts set forth in the pamphlet Notes on the Eruption of Library Buildings. So now you're going to find out how Bertram produced this pamphlet. So you've already seen this image of a typical Carnegie library floor plan. This is actually from Wheeler and Gibbons' book. Um, and um, should we go on? Yes, so. Okay, so Wheeler and Gibbons revealed that a, and this is a quote, a draft of these notes had been written by Mr. James Bertram of the corporation and several plan arrangements drawn under the direction of Edward L. Tilton, the architect. Copies were sent to those librarians most experienced in building and to several architects for criticism and suggestion. So by consulting with both librarians and architects, um, Bertram quietly entered their work. So the fact that Edward Tilton was the architect behind the plans is very interesting. I don't know, do I have another slide? I don't think so. That was the last slide. That was the last slide. Okay. This is back to the um, first floor, floor plan of the central line. That's what this image is. Um, and so here's the connection. Tilton was the other consulting architect for the plans of Central Library. So through the design of Central Library and the publication of Wheeler and Gibbons' book, Carnegie truly had an enduring influence on library architecture, and it really was far beyond the building of small branch libraries. And I guess that's the end of my program. And thank you for bearing with all the technical This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.